there everyone and welcome back to hits 21 where me rob me andy and me lizzie look back at every single uk number one of the 21st century from january 2000 right through to the present day if you want to get in touch with us you can find us over on twitter we are at hits 21 uk that is at hits 21 uk and you can email us too Uh, Just send it over to hits21podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. Just like our previous episodes, we'll be looking back at four number one singles from the year 2001. We're not in the year 2000 (laughs) anymore. I always feel very happy when I get to put an added number onto the end of 2000. um, (laughs) Because it just reminds me that we're no longer stuck in the in the first year where the show is definitely moving on this time we'll be covering the period between the 4th of march and the 14th of april in 2001 um before we come on to this week we're just going to take a quick glance back at last week um our poll winner on spotify was whole again out of the of course damn straight this time yeah the only sensible choice really um so, yeah, yeah, as a big fan of rolling, I understand why that wouldn't have been the sensible consensus choice. Um, <laughs> I realise I don't put enough effort in with regards to promoting that poll. I just kind of stick it on the episode and then mention the winner a week later. So what I'll do is just alert anybody who listens to us who doesn't know. If you go on to Spotify and you go on to our podcast page on Spotify and if you go on to our latest episode... There's a poll underneath it that you can vote in, and it'll just be for what your favourite song is of that week. So please go and do it. Um, we we get you know enough votes to get like a decent cross the opinion of a decent cross section of our of our yeah. listeners. But the more the merrier, and everybody's opinion is completely valid. Please don't troll on the vote. Um, please <laughs> be entirely serious with your vote. That's the only thing that uh, I would ask. But you know as Terry Coverley says in the thick of it, if you go to a high school bully and say, please you don't tickle me, me <laughs> that's when they really go for it. So, yeah, I may have left myself open to some shit polls in the future that will uh, yeah. really skew things up, but never mind. Another thing we could do to promote it is um, every time anyone says the word poll, we can just add in a sign of it over the top of it so that really instills it into people's heads and if you do vote we won't do that so there we go I'll hold you hostage to that <laughs> <laughs> go vote or we'll put obnoxious sound effects on it yeah. well uh, Andy um, I'm going to leave that bit in just so I could do the the big klaxon every time you say poll and I'll probably have to do it when I've just said poll two times every time I say what no poll that's our secret word of the day <laughs> oh. anyway um, as always we're going to introduce each new episode by giving you some news and pop culture headlines from around the time that these four songs were number one in the UK. Divers at Coniston Water in the Lake District searching for the speedboat that once belonged to Donald Campbell recover the wreckage, along with Campbell's remains. The boat had been lying at the bottom of the lake ever since 1967, when Campbell was killed while attempting to break the world water speed record. 
Meanwhile, the Eden Project in Cornwall opens all of its doors to the public for the first time. The visitor attraction in the town of St. Austell had opened partially in the year 2000, but it wouldn't be until March 2001 that the full site was available for visits. The Eden Project would go on to be a filming location for 2002 awful James Bond film, Die Another Day, and is said to have contributed £1 billion to the Cornwall economy, and has contributed the end of Pierce Brosnan's career as James Bond. <laughs> Amazing. And in sport, Manchester United are confirmed as Premier League champions for the third season in a row and the seventh time in nine seasons. Arsenal finished second, while Liverpool and Leeds United finished third and fourth respectively. Manchester City, Coventry City and Bradford City are all relegated. But things will turn around on that front in the future. That's why I've decided to, because it's the first proper chance we've had to put that in. So, I mean, yeah. we could have kind of done it last year, but I figured, hey, New Year, why don't we just, just put in yeah. the Premier League winners every year? <laughs> just you Good watch job. out for Bradford City. They're going to take over. <laughs> Good job City got relegated out of the Premier League where they belong. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, Andy, we did belong out of the Premier League for a very long time. Uh, but things are things are better now. Uh, <laughs> it's a funny story. Pull back off, eat your heart out. Well, it's a funny story about this, actually. Um, I became a City fan in 99. Um, and I went to a couple of games in like 99 and 2000 when we were in the second tier, the year that under Joe Royal, City were promoted into the Premier League. And then I kind of stopped paying attention. And I remember some kid coming up to me at some soccer school during the May to June half term and with a newspaper in his hand saying, ah, City got relegated. And I'm like, oh, did we? I didn't even know we were still playing. Because, like, I was six, seven Aww. years old, and it was like, what? Like, oh, I, I didn't realise that football just ended forever last year. Um, there was a kid out. with a newspaper in his hands. Like, have you just come from, like, the 1830s? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> extra, extra, <laughs> extra, 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 City relegated. relegated. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, um, I mean... What day is it, young boy? Why, it's relegation day. <laughs> Well, Lizzie, you'll be familiar um, with where I was. Andy, you won't be yet, but you may be. Which um, It was um, Avondale Recreation Centre in Stockport. Uh, and yeah. I was upstairs above the sports hall and the swimming area where you, you had that viewing platform where you could look out onto both both uh, both halls. And we, there was, I was sat at a table and some kid wandered up to me with a newspaper with the Premier League table and he put it down <laughs> on the table in front of me and pointed at it and just went like, look! Shitty City got relegated or something like that. And I'm like, okay, I'm seven years old. Leave me alone. Like, you know, be nice. I love the, I love the idea that he spent his pocket money on the newspaper just to lord it over some kid he doesn't know. I know. Get him by the paper, Governor. Tuppence a bundle. Can I order the telegraph, please? <laughs> oh, God. Um, the films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period are as follows. Enemy at the Gates for one week, Miss Congeniality for two weeks, and Rugrats in Paris the movie for one week. And the first series of Celebrity Big Brother broadcasts on Channel 4 in aid of Comic Relief. Comic Relief will rear its head again when we get into uh, talking about the songs this week. The eventual winner after a week-long series was comedian Jack D. 
ITV, meanwhile, as the 5,000th episode of Coronation Street. Just for context, by the way, we're more than 40 years into Cory at this point, in 2001. Last year, they aired the 10,000th episode. So they're going at double the rate these days. Jesus Christ. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Feels like it and all. In this 2001 episode, Ryan Sykes breaks into Emma and Curly Watts' house, remember them, where Emma finds him, talks him around, and then lets him go. Meanwhile, Ken Barlow says an emotional farewell to Adam, who has chosen to live with his father, Mike Baldwin, instead. I remember that. That was nice. In terms of other British series that make their debuts during this time, we've got the Channel 4 comedy drama Teachers, which my dad was a huge fan of, uh, and the Channel 5 Endurance Games show, Touch the Truck, which was hosted by Dale Winton and saw 20 contestants aiming to win a Toyota Land Cruiser by ensuring they were the last person to keep their hand on said truck. And I spent the whole time reading that sentence, picturing in my head, Lynn, idea for a TV show. 20 people touch the truck. Let's not repeat Nocturne into an all-night rave. (laughs) Well, I actually watched some of this and then sent you to the link. Did you know? Did you watch any of this? It's insane. I've seen it before. (laughs) I've seen it before. It's crazy. It's just the lengths that they go to. That woman who eventually finishes second, I I forget her name. She was given a 15 minute medical break because her blood oxygen levels went so low that she couldn't stand up anymore. And like, there was a guy who hallucinated that he was in a job interview or something like that along the way. He's like, he's just. There's a camera on the truck looking at him and he's got both his hands on the truck and he seems like he's, you know, kind of all there. And then something comes over him and he just starts talking as if he's giving a job interview. And the, at that point, the doctors come over and go, you're right, mate. Um, we're just going to take you away from the truck and we'll make you go and sit down. Uh, this is probably a bit dangerous for you now, to be honest. <laughs> just like that. A bit like that Netflix show Awake from the other year. Have you seen that? Is this making people stay awake for however long? Yeah, so, well, it's more sadistic than that. So it's whoever stays awake the longest, but you still don't win the money even if you do that. So while you're staying awake, as time passes for 24 hours or whatever, you're given, like, a limitless box of pennies, and you count out the pennies one by one and put them into a second box and spend all your time doing that. And you have to count it and remember how much you've counted and you win that if after 24 hours of staying awake and doing all sorts of activities that distract you, you then have to remember the number of exactly what you counted. And if you're with like a thousand pounds away from it, you don't get it. It's just oh. like the most sadistic thing in the world that you have to deprive people of sleep to the point of exhaustion and then maybe not give them the money. <laughs> it's mental. Jesus Absolutely Christ. crazy. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in the world that's someone's thing. meanwhile in the US WCW Monday Nitro broadcasts its final show from Panama City Beach, Florida with a simulcast with the WWF's Monday Night Raw television series officially ending a six year long rating struggle in professional wrestling known as the Monday Night Wars also in this period was Wrestlemania 17 which was which well still is widely regarded as possibly the greatest wrestling show of all time what happened a lot of things um it it ended with stone cold beating the rock and turning heel by aligning with vince mcmahon okay Mm. Uh, meanwhile in american comedy i guess you could say yeah malcolm in the middle makes his debut on 
British TV, as does Will and Grace. Huh. Oh, yeah, lovely. yeah. They they came. They, it, it, you see, it's in that era of TV that doesn't really exist anymore, where you would hear about a show from America. Oh, and oh, don't the Americans like that? And then at the end of the first season, if it had done really well in the US, it'd get syndicated, and then we'd get it. And oh, oh, this new American show. Oh, let's sit down and watch it. And I seem to remember, that, uh, Andy, you'll know more about this than me. That's how Lost came to the UK, right? It is. So for those who don't know, the reason why you may know this, uh, why I might know this, is because I used to host a podcast about Lost called Flashback, a Lost podcast available on all good podcast providers. Uh, (laughs) And yes, the answer to that is that Lost didn't start in the UK until after season two had started airing in the US over a year later. Um, which meant that when I got into it, I could just catch up on like 30 episodes online by entirely legal means. Um, But yeah, and also around that time... um, Sky One lost the rights to it, and so Lost just went off the air in the U- in the UK for like three years, and that was normal for shows that were big in the US to just disappear from the UK. And because it was the early days of the internet, they were just gone. That happened all the time. It was a really weird era <laughs> where we were not quite there with globalization yet, so we were about halfway there. It's a bit weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think what the last show like that was uh, because I'm pretty sure Mad Men did a similar thing. Like it started on BBC, but only about a year after it had first aired. And then it just got gobbled up by Sky, like everything does. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Andy, how are the album charts looking at this point in history? Have the Beatles left yet? The Beatles have left. They left last week, yeah, and yeah, got replaced that's, that's by right, Texas yeah. and by Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavoured Water, um, but only for a week each. And also Dido replaced them last week as well. Um this week it's looking very varied. Um, there's a lot of sort of random ones that are in and out. Um, so Dido remains at the top of the chart with No Angel, um, continuing that six-week run that took her ten times platinum um, with that album that I think exists in most people's households um, or most people's families' households. That album exists. Um, it was replaced by Songbird by Eva Cassidy, Um uh, Whenever yeah. I say the word songbird, I picture Ben de la Creme saying that word as Maggie Smith on Drag Race. I just wrote songbird. So I just had to mention that. Anyway, <laughs> um, Eva Cassidy was only number one for two weeks, though, before she was replaced by a little group called Hearsay with their album uh-huh. Pop Stars, inspired by the TV show Pop Stars, in which they've assembled a group of five pop stars. Um, <laughs> more about them at another time, potentially. Um and after two weeks at number one, they were replaced by the Stereophonics with their new album, Just Enough Education to Perform, which just ekes in at the very end of this period that we're covering um, this week. Stereophonics um, are a band I have very little to say about, which is a problem because they're going to be coming up in the future. Um, I will say that was a fairly drab era for albums that we've just covered there. Eva Cassidy, Hearsay and Stereophonics. Uh, you're all right, mate. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all available now in a charity shop near you. <laughs> yeah. And have been for about 15 years. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Lizzie, how are the states looking? Uh, yeah, another very busy period on the singles chart. Um, Stutter by Joe featuring Mystical would be number one for most of March before eventually giving way to Butterfly by Crazy Town for one week. <laughs> And then Angel by Shaggy featuring Ravon for one week. Mm. And then Butterfly again for one week. Oh. Yeah, so Butterfly would finish at number 29 on the year-end Hot 100 and Angel would finish slightly higher at number 17. 
Meanwhile, by April 14th, Janet Jackson will begin a seven-week run at number one with All For You, which was narrowly beaten to number one in the UK by a song we're covering this very episode. Mm. It would finish at number three on the year-end list. At number two was Fallen by Alicia Keys, which was actually number one for most of the period after 9-11. And at number one, do you want to take any guesses? Because I guarantee you won't get it. Oh, I don't know. From around this time? No, I don't know. Go on. No. 2001, it's Hanging by a Moment by Lifehouse. What? I don't even know that. Okay. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, uh, for the no, second I year don't. in a row, a really fun fact, for the second year in a row, the number one song on the year-end list didn't get to number one on the weekly charts. Wow. Oh, How weird is that? Those weird things. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, in terms of albums, Shaggy would still be at number one until mid-March with Hot Shot before giving away to Every Day by Dave Matthews Band for two weeks. <laughs> Every Day went triple platinum in the US and finished at number 20 on their year-end list, but it only got to number 89 on the UK weekly charts. Yeah. After that, Hot Shot by Shaggy would return to number one for another two weeks and would eventually be overtaken by Tupac's posthumous album Until the End of Time, which went four times platinum, and finished at number 40 on their year-end list, but only got as high as number 31 in the UK weekly albums charts. A lot of um, a lot of differences between yeah. UK and America this week. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Janet Jackson jumps out at me as, you know, that's a big one, because Janet Jackson is, I think, so, so much bigger in the US than she is here. You know, seven, seven weeks at number one in the US, and, and she's never really been that big deal over here, to be honest. Like, whereas in the US, I think she's sort of on par with the likes of, you know, J-Lo and Gaga and all those, really. Janet Jackson is right up there with those. Whereas I think in the UK, you know, most people would struggle to name more than one or two songs by her. Well, in, yeah, in the US, she's up there with Michael. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. let alone Well, she did else. the Super Bowl. Exactly. You know, yeah. Well, yeah, more yeah. on that at the time. Oh, she God. has a really good, like, All For You is fine, I think. I haven't listened to it that much. I like much. All For You. But the, the four albums that she does before that, Control, Rhythm Nation, Janet and the Velvet Rope, they're, they're yeah. great records. I like all of those. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, totally agree. I, I am a fan of those. So, thank you for that comprehensive report, Lizzie. No worries. And now we're going to move on into our four songs for the week. And the first of the uh, number one singles we'll be talking about this week is this.
my shoulder wasn't me Heard the words that I told her wasn't me Heard the screams getting louder wasn't me She stayed until it was over Honey came in and she got me red-handed Creeping with the girl next door Picture this, we were both fat naked Banging on the bathroom floor I had tried to keep her from what she was about to see Why should she believe me when I told her it wasn't me Okay, it's It Wasn't Me by Shaggy and Rick Rock. Released as the lead single from Shaggy's fifth studio album that Lizzie mentioned before, entitled Hot Shot, It Wasn't Me was Shaggy's eighth single to chart in the UK and his third to reach number one, after O Carolina and Mr. Boombastic both reached the summit in 1993 and 1995. It Wasn't Me went straight in at number one as a new entry, knocking Atomic Kitten off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week, selling 345,000 copies in its only week atop the charts. Jesus Christ. That is such an anomaly. It, wow. It's really, That's really almost is. ten times what Limp Biscuit did. <laughs> <laughs> it beat competition from Nobody Wants to Be Lonely by Ricky Martin and Christina Aguilera, which got to number four. I'm Like a Bird by Nelly Furtado. Oh. That's, a, that's, a, that's a name. Uh, that got to number five. Yeah. So Why So Sad by Manic Street Preachers, which got to number eight. And also Found That Soul by Manic Street Preachers which got to number nine. When it was knocked off the top spot, It Wasn't Me fell one place to number two. After leaving the charts in uh, 2001, it charted again in 2002, then again in 2012, and then again in 2014. It was officially named the biggest selling song in the UK of the year 2001. It went on to sell nearly 1.5 million copies in the UK, and to this day, it has spent a total of 30 weeks inside the top 100. So we are dealing with quite a big... It is quite a big deal, I I do think, though, that 30 weeks is relatively light for a song that did this well to be honest, mm. and also one week at number one for the biggest selling yeah. song of the year. It's just crazy. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's really strange, though, because it doesn't go straight out of the top ten or anything. It, like, bounces around. Like, it goes to two, then four, then, like, seven, then two again, and it's just... It takes a while to go. Mm. Yeah, I think when we talk about the next song, it will become clear why this wasn't number one for longer. That's because, true. yeah, it, it will definitely become uh, clearer. I just want to say as well, before we go too far into this, um, there was one song in the year 2000 that sold a million copies or eventually went on to sell a million copies. And as we all know, that was Bob the Builder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are four songs in the year 2001 that all went on to sell a million copies one of them was Whole Again. Yep. The next one is It Wasn't Me. And mm-hmm. then the third and fourth entries are the next two songs on this episode, which wow. means that the four songs that sold a million copies in the year 2001 were all number one, one after the other. So that means that all five that were in this two-year period were released between December and March. And basically March, yeah. Wow. 
What a busy time. Wow, crazy. Yeah, really, really is something. I think that's why I have quite vivid memories of all of these songs this week compared to, like, slightly hazier bits before and afterwards. Like, all of these songs, maybe apart from the final one this week, they all feel like moments in pop chart history. They all feel like pretty big moments to me. And so, at least for this week, the first of this mo- the first of these moments uh, is it wasn't me, Lizzie. Ha- was this a moment for you? It, it was a moment for me. <laughs> um, I do remember it pretty well. I don't think it was really a moment, but I guess I'll start with a question: Is it fair to call this a novelty song? Yes. Yes. I was going to raise the exact same point, right? I was going to raise this as a question of: Is this comedy factor that around Shaggy in general, intentional or not. Do we all think yes? Yes. I think in this song, yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know about the rest, because, like, I, I haven't... Other than Mr. Boombastic, it's kind of... Oh, an Angel, obviously, which is coming later this year. But, yeah, um, I think with this in particular, like, this is based on a comedy routine by, I think, um, Eddie Murphy... Right, mm. and it's like you know the the. I feel like the joke does wear off quite quickly, as, as in it's like he's given all of this advice, and then the punchline is the other guy turns around and says, "Well, I think you're talking out of your ass." And off he goes, and that's kind of it. But I don't know. This has had it's had a longer lasting effect because I think. At the time, we probably didn't know that this sort of defence of just, like, saying it wasn't me when it plainly was you and that there's clearly evidence that it was you that's recorded would become a much bigger thing in popular culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's maybe had a bit of a bad effect in that sense, at least. As far as the song itself goes, I think it's... I think it's okay. It definitely does have its moments and it's it's kind of nice to hear it in, in isolation again. But I think after the first time, I just don't see who's who's like buying this after the third or fourth listen. Once the, the penny's dropped, that it's clearly just, hey, the guys are giving bad advice. I guess it is just the hook is kind of irresistible in that sense of, you know, it was me and that's the whole thing. Um... And I also think it just it goes on a little bit too long, you know. After the um, after the last sort of bit where Rick Rock says, "Um, you might think you're a player and such and such," that's the end of the song. But then it carries on. There's another like forty seconds after that where he just goes back to the the butt naked thing, and it's like this doesn't really need to be here. <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of think it's it's all right. Um, I don't I don't definitely don't hate it but I don't love it either. Hmm. Yeah, I feel quite similarly. But what about you Andy? I feel very similarly as well. Um the the first kind of point <clears throat> I wanted to raise was a different possible 90s inspiration which maybe is just a coincidence or maybe it was inspired by that Eddie Murphy routine from the 90s. Um that might possibly explain it. But the thing that always comes to my head with this song is there is an episode of The Simpsons in the 90s where Bart Simpson quite clearly does something that's entirely his fault oh, and then yeah. looks at the crowd and says, <laughs> I didn't do it. And it really, really takes off to the point where a single is released of him repeatedly saying the phrase, I didn't do it. <laughs> and it gets really old, really fast. It's a novelty hit. 
and then it disappears and Bart is completely forgotten. I feel like that must surely have factored into this in some way. It's the exact same intent, it's the exact same idea behind the song of it clearly was you, but you're saying it wasn't, which is a source of humour. Right? It, that Say must the line, Shaggy. Yeah, it is, and it is. It's sort of, <laughs> yeah. intentionally or not, it's very similar to the I didn't do it thing. Um, yeah, anyway, that was just sort of that came to mind with me. I think that this is sort of, I see why it's popular, but not for the reasons that I think most people like it. Um, I think most people are really into the It Wasn't Me aspect of the song, which for me is really tiresome and I don't like at all. But I actually quite like Rick Rock's sections. By the way, Rick Rock, so obscure, doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. When you click Rick Rock's name, it just goes to It Wasn't Me. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, he sort of does most of the legwork in this song, really. Like, he carries pretty much the whole song, apart from Shaggy's relatively brief, somewhat rap, somewhat singing sections in the middle. And um, those bits are actually okay. They're quite catchy. You can really sing along to them. One of the things I don't like about this song is that it has that, what I'm going to call, Craig David quality of... um, you know when I repeatedly called out Craig David last year for lyrics that are just weirdly fixated on certain points and go too far and kind of break the mystique slightly? I think there's a lot of that in this where it's... The thing is, this is presented like it's going to be a story song of like, right, my girlfriend walked in on me having sex with another woman, so I'm going to say it wasn't me. And you'd think it would then develop from there. But we don't get that. It's not a developing story. We just get more and more detail about what she saw like it's just an event that that is described for three minutes straight and it goes into so much unnecessary detail like she didn't just catch you she saw you having naked sex on the bathroom floor and she came in using the key that you gave her you were caught very very much red-handed as rick rock says you know they go into such unnecessary detail about how obviously guilty he is (laughs) of sleeping with this girl that i think it just comes across i think that's where the novelty factor comes from that it just seems silly it comes across as like over the top of like how more obviously could you have been caught and so to me it doesn't really work on that level but it is really really catchy and it's a good idea like as as a sort of concept it works i just think the execution is a bit silly and i'm I'm not 100 percent sure that this was supposed to be a novelty song i think it just comes across that way because the lyrics go so so heavy on this point and make it a really kind of unsubtle haha yes it was you because she caught you naked on the bathroom floor i definitely think that that aspect of it figures into the whole unsavory side of it that comes across these days where like you know you're being a bit of a pig really you clearly cheated on your girlfriend you're trying to get away with it despite the fact you were caught red-handed and it's treated as this oh what's he like boys will be boys it's treated as that kind of thing when you know it's not and yeah, we shouldn't it's be kind of gaslighting it. it is kind of gaslighting yeah. and we should we should and i know it's just a song and it's just a bit of fun but we you know we shouldn't make light of that really i think you know it probably would have worked better a song like this being sung from the woman's perspective of he said it wasn't me but i caught him doing this i think that would work much better of like you know we could get Ooh. behind the singer of like yeah, yeah yeah he did do it and why is he saying it wasn't him you go get him girl i think that would work much oh, much better like an aim and frankie type. Exactly yeah, like i was just Eamon gonna frankie say sort of yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly we don't need same. to have both sides of it though yeah. i just think that version on its own would be superior and there are songs like that out there you know of 
about women who've walked in on their man cheating and then they've thrown them out. Like that's that's a thing. That's a whole genre of song. And you this would work much better about me. in that you sense. Must not know about me. Yes, exactly. I can never yeah. love you. <laughs> exactly. And and I just think that the focus of this is wrong, the intent is wrong, and the, the lyrics are laughable. But having said that, it is really, really catchy and it's in my head all the time this week because of the fact I've had to listen to it a few times. It is in my head all the time. Definitely the catchiest song of the week. Um, but, I don't know. It's it's a bit of a mess. Um, and it's one of those songs that will hang around forever. I think it will be with us forever and ever and ever because it's got that novelty factor. But I'm not sure if that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree with both of you uh, in the sense that I think it's decent kind of novelty fun it's inherently comedic and quite transparent about that and i always appreciate a laugh i agree with the two of you that it is very infectious that you remember all of the key parts and still remember them a long time after you've you know forgotten about the song um and it does a decent job of kind of pulling you a long way before it drops the punchline that no rick rock isn't going to follow shaggy's advice Unfortunately, I think, yeah, over the years, I think people have kind of forgotten the resolution to this song. And that's not necessarily the song's fault, although I would charge it with making the punchline the least catchy part of the song. Because all the stuff about it wasn't me, go and gaslight your girlfriend, just say that it wasn't you, tell her, you know, like, this this preposterous situation that they're cooking up... That's all the catchy and funny stuff. And then when it gets serious, it's melodic and it's nice. But who remembers the stuff after, you know, and I'm sorry for nothing, or whatever he says. Like, who in the, which average person in the street would sing that bit first if you asked them to sing a bit from It Wasn't Me? You know? And it just, it feels like the, the bit where, the, you know, the... The actual resolution of the song, the emotional message that you're supposed to take away, which is, no, don't lie to your girlfriend when you've done something like this. Just own up and try and work it out or That's it, you know, yeah. take your punishment like a man, you know, own up to it, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's the bit that nobody really remembers because it just kind of gets tacked on at the end as a bit of like a coda section, which then is, like you say, Lizzie, overwritten slightly by going back to the bridge where he just re- he just repeats the situation again. And I kind of like the fact that... Because I had forgotten over the... I, I, I had forgotten over the years that this is how the song ended. That it was Rick Rock basically saying, yeah, you think that you're so hot, Shaggy, but, like, this is total nonsense. Like, what are you talking about? I'm just going to go and own up yeah. to my mistake and see if she'll forgive me. And that's nice. And it was a nice kind of ending because it, it you know, it does the kind of... It means that the subject of the joke is Shaggy in the end. He's the target of the joke by the end of the song. But through the majority of the song that people actually remember, the target of the joke is this girl whose name we never know and whose perspective we never get. And I I wish they'd made that last bit a little catchier, if only so that that bit would endure just as much as the saw me banging on the counter wasn't me you know that bit but never mind um i think it's decent i don't hate it if it was on i would not turn it off um while i've been listening to these out loud um my partner has been quite open about the fact that even though she was only about three or four years old when this song came out she was you know she, she remembers it 
as you said, that, like, you know, she used to laugh about it with her dad and stuff like that. So, you know, it's nice that it has this place in pop culture history for people. Um, but I, and I, I understand why it sold so many, because I think it's just one of those where a country can be captured by something, and clearly they were, at the, at the population was at, at that moment in time. But I wouldn't go any further than just kind of appreciating it for what it was and nothing more really if i if i never heard this song again in my life i don't think it would matter because it just kind of goes around my head anyway and yet i never have the itch to listen to it it feels kind of half finished and it doesn't surprise me to learn that like sort of half shaggy's camp wanted to release it and half didn't even want to put it on the album Mm. and like it's got like one hit wonder written all over it except for the fact that he'd already had two hits and he has another one this year yeah yeah, it says a lot about... I, I can't believe Rip Rock's not got a wiki page. That's that's something. I yeah, really thought he would. Yeah, what to Rock, I wonder? Yeah, well, he's 50 I'm now, apparently. Now. Still alive. Um, that's good. But, yeah. Apart from that, who knows? I suppose I should find out what happened to Rick Rock. <laughs> yeah, let's find out. I found him on Discogs. Is Rick Rock on TikTok? See, I was thinking about this. Um... Whether Rick Rock these days would switch to uh, TikTok on Google. Did you mean um, Ravon's got a wiki page? Because um, he, <laughs> he's the one that's on Angel. I don't know if this is the real Rick Rock, but there's, a, there's an account on Twitter with 230 followers. And his website just goes to an index of page. Oh my god. It's got to be him. I really hope that's him. Oh, it's got to be him. It is! Oh my god, it is him! Oh, we should have got him on. <laughs> um, he's only he's got, got 200 followers. He's got 30 <laughs> followers. Oh my god. Oh, we should have got him on. Never mind. Oh. Bloody hell. He follows eight people. Wow. Is Shaggy one of them? Um, what the <laughs> fuck facts? Leah Lost, Cast Me, Dan Dan Music Man, DJ Gumsha, Uber Facts. <laughs> Zoom and Miller and Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are the essentials, basically. Oh my god, this is actually his Twitter account. That's amazing. Um, he shared a tweet in 2013. I got 1,536 points while escaping from demon monkeys. Beat that, and it's Temple Run. <laughs> I still play Temple Run like every day. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. What happens if you're scared half to death twice? Oh, that that first week, seeing John Legend on stage got me thinking, it's time to start recording again. Oh, bless him. So (laughs) I guess since I took so long to get here, this isn't going to work right away. It's all good. I never give up. That was his third tweet. Oh, Oh, I want to reach out to him. I want to... He hasn't used his Twitter account since February 2021. And he's liked a tweet that says, I hope Shaggy broke off some change for my man Rick Rock for that commercial. Oh. I wonder what commercial that was. <sighs> oh. Um, okay. Next up is this.
Okay, this is Uptown Girl by Westlife. Released as the third single from their second album entitled Coast to Coast, Uptown Girl is Westlife's ninth single to be released in the UK overall and their eighth to reach number one. Released as the Comic Relief Charity single for 2001, it is a cover of Billy Joel's original song from 1983, which sold over a million copies in the UK and also reached number one. Uptown Girl went straight in at number one as a new entry, knocking Shaggy and Rick Rock off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week, selling 292,000 copies in its only week atop the charts. It beat off competition from Clint Eastwood by Gorillaz, which got to number four, for fuck's sake. And Shit On You by D12, which got to number ten. (laughs) Yeah, that's Eminem's Eminem's side project, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. When it was knocked off the top spot, Uptown Girl fell one place to number two, and by the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for just 16 weeks. But that didn't stop it from selling over a million copies in the UK by the year 2021, which is when it was finally declared as a million seller. Um, hey, it's comic relief. Uh, uh, God, this is going to happen basically every year at this exact point, isn't it? Yep. Uh, Lizzie, how do we feel about Uptown Girl by Westlife? Um, a bit like Take On Me last year. It's not a terrible cover by any means, but what's the point if you're just going to play it straight and not put your own stamp on it? Hmm. There's really nothing to say. if Because I don't want to talk about the, the lyrical content of Uptown Girl or anything, because that's not the point. It's like It's not their song. And like, okay, you can cover what you want, but... This doesn't really do anything with the song. It is just a case of... Like, it's brilliant from the comic relief side because they've clearly just gone, okay, who's the biggest selling act in the UK? What's the song that most people don't dislike? You know, what will get on Radio 1 and Radio 2? This is it. It, You know, it's just what will make us the most money for charity and it does its job. And speaking of comic relief... Like, this isn't great, but it's far from the worst comic relief singles, some of which have been before and some of which are still to come. Yeah. I don't want to spoil the ones which are coming, but I don't think this is quite as bad as The Stonk by Hale and Pace, for example. <laughs> or um, oh, what else have we got here? Well, Mama, who do you think you are? That's not too bad, the Spice Girls. When the Going Gets Tough by Boyzone. Yeah, another cover. Yeah. yeah. Love Can Build a Bridge by Cher, Chrissy Hind, Nana Cherry and Eric Clapton. Um, Everyone remembers that. Yeah. I, I Want to Be Elected by Mr Bean and Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, Ugh. some of these are rough. Um, Living Doll by Cliff Richard and the Young Ones as well and mm. Rocking Around the Christmas Tree by Mel and Kim. Mel well, that Smith one's and Kim fun, Wild. But yeah. But yeah, um... It gets, yeah, so I'll just say it gets worse from here, but yeah. this is just okay. Andy, I know you feel a little differently, so I'll let you go last. You can have the final say. Um, with regards to Uptown, to Go- uh, Uptown Girl, I'm not a huge fan of the original. I don't know about you two. How do you feel about Billy Joel's version? I, I like it, Um in a sort of average sense. The thing, the thing is, I really like Billy Joel. 
Um, and I don't think it's one of Billy Joel's best. Um, but I like Billy Joel enough that I think it, you know, it, it's all mm. kind of automatically good because that kind of spirit is there that just kind of takes you away in so much of his music. So I like it, but I don't think it's a highlight of his career by any means. No, I don't really like Billy Joel, but I also wouldn't rush to turn off a radio if it came on. Mm. Yeah, I feel kind of in between the two of you, which is I'm not a huge fan of the original. I, I like its construction more than its delivery. I find it to be very loud. I feel like it's being shouted at me, the original. It's very clunky and noisy in a way I didn't really remember. I've listened to it a few times this week and I'm just... Like, I love that its melodies in various sections are really strong. That, like, the entire thing's feel... It feels like a series of bridges and choruses. The catchiest bit of the song is just the verse. And then the various other bits are just, you know, they build a lot of suspense until it resolves back to the verse. And I like songs that go for kind of... Uncom- it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, The World Has Turned and Left Me Here by Weezer, which has no clear chorus, but it always has a, it always has a sense of momentum. But with Uptown Girl, I feel like it's gone for like a Phil Spector sound. And it... it I was going to say Frankie Valli. The, the, there's a little bit of that too. I, I, maybe just in terms of the production, but it feels like I'm being hit over the head with a small hammer. Um... It just, I don't know, it just very, very loud. It really got in my ears in a way that I didn't remember. I, I didn't really expect it to. Um, it's just loud and very noisy in a way that I didn't really anticipate. Um, and the Westlife version is basically that, but more sterile and more, how do I put this, comic relief, you know? Like, the whole thing is lit yeah. up and airbrushed like it's some mid-2000s American sitcom. It's just like, it, it just kind of invites itself into your life, whether you've asked for it or not. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of like you, Lizzie. I'm not really a fan of this. Um, but I don't think it's horrendous, but it it's a song that kind of mildly appeals to me, done by a group who kind of don't appeal to me. And so it lands somewhere in the middle of those two, which is that I don't hate it, but eh. I, also, I feel like if yeah, yeah I was I was gonna say like if Westlife had a sitcom, this would be playing over like a montage or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Andy, I think you're going to beat this to death with a baseball bat. So have at it. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me to phrase my summary in the words of Catherine Tate's Nan. What a load of old shit! Oh, <laughs> awful. Awful, really awful. Um, so, it, possibly prefaced by the fact that, yes, I am a Billy Joel fan, not this song specifically, but, oh, right, Westlife have this habit of covering artists that are very big swings for them, that, you know, are really kind of out of their comfort zone for some reason. They they went for ABBA, they they went for, you know, Phil Collins, who is, you know, Phil Collins is not the most charismatic person in the world, but he can carry a ballad. And they, they thought, you know, why don't we do that, but 10 times more languid and with Mariah Carey. And then with ABBA, you know, they kind of did nothing to that. And now they've picked an artist who the whole essence of why he is popular, really, I think, the, the, the whole selling point of Billy Joel is that he just oozes charisma, oozes personality, that there is so much kind of tone and soul and a sense of place and time with Billy Joel's music. That's what's so great about Piano Man. It's what's so great about 
a lot of his music is that, you know, you really kind of get a sense of feeling from it. And so when he comes out with a cheesy pop song like this, you still kind of feel like you can connect with it. You know, you kind of feel like there is a real uptown girl that he's singing about, that this is about something in particular. You can connect with this. Then you get this cover of it. Where I, I, you know, I had, I, I remembered this being out and it didn't register to me as, you know, anything special at the time. But I was like, yeah, whatever. It's a, it's a bit of a crap Westlife cover. Whatever. That's all I thought about it. And when I listened to it for the first time last week, I was taken aback by how bad this was as a cover. Um, everything they add to it detracts from the song and everything they don't do is also a mistake. It, it's, it's really so soulless, so tacky, so tinny. They add those big over-the-top drums to it that don't work at all. They take it down two keys, which is just shameless and really, really obvious. And even with that, they're vocally struggling to hit the high notes as they did before on My Love and on a few others as well and Against All Odds. You know, they, they don't have the singing ability for these kind of songs. It's really like... The way they pass it around from singer to singer means it's robbed of all kind of individuality and all sense of that it's a real girl because it's just, they're jumping in, I'll sing this line, you sing that line. It's by the numbers. It's got the production of a tweenies track. It's really, really sterile to the point of being borderline unlistenable, I think. I really, like, I really, really hate this. And the only reason it's not, like, one of my worst songs we've covered on the whole show so far is that actually... As Lizzie said, as a song, you know, it's actually quite, it's, it's, it's all right, if not quite good, because I know you don't really like it that much, Lizzie, but it's all right, and that's nothing to do with Westlife. Much like I Have a Dream, it's, it's an all right song, you know, and I can't take that away from it, but I think, I don't really think there's anything at all that Westlife do on this song that they can take any positive credit for. This is a real low point, um... The only thing that's lower from them so far is Against All Odds, and that's taken over the edge by, for me by the fact that I hate that song already. Whereas this song is sort of okay, and so it's slightly rescued, but oh man, I have nothing good to say about this. Really, like, I, I'm really fed up of Westlife at this point. Um, I don't really feel like there's anything more to say than that. Like, I, I know I've kind of torn it anyone there, but I just have nothing positive to say about this that isn't entirely credited to Billy Joel rather than Westlife um, awful, really awful yeah I'm glad we did get an actual Billy Joel fan perspective on this, because otherwise mm. like, I don't like, admittedly, I didn't listen to them side by side, and I think if I did I might have noticed a few more kind of weaknesses, like, you just mentioned the key change, th- not the key change oh, well, but, you know, I, they, I didn't mention that, yeah the, the key change, that's another bad thing that they throw into this needlessly, but yeah, yeah yeah, so the key change and the pitch lowering and just how they kind of play it in the safest way possible but somehow completely miss the mark. Mm. I think it's a... This is maybe a broader point, but I think it's a mistake in general to cover songs that are really well-known classics. Because this was already, like, a big classic song before Westlife covered it. You know, it was something that I knew as a kid already, which, considering I was only eight, nine years old, that it must have been very, very big already. And I think it's a mistake to do that, to cover songs that are already massive. Because what can you really... Unless you're really going back to the drawing board and doing something completely outside the box with it, I just don't really see how you can ever escape the shadow of the original. So you're, you're either just seen as cashing in on it or as paling 
in comparison to it, or both, as is the case with this. You know, I think there are other examples of that coming up. Like I've always thought McFly's cover of Don't Stop Me Now, as much as I like McFly, I think that was really shameless. You know, that was for comic relief as well, I think. I'm not sure. I think that might yeah, have been Yeah, it was, I'm pretty sure. And that was just like, they did nothing with it at all. It's a straight cover. And it's like, well, what's the point then? And We Will Rock You, of course, from last year by five. I, I think there are very few covers I can think of off the top of my head. Feel free to jump in with any. There are very few covers I can think of of pre-existing massive classics that work, that actually succeed in their own right. I don't think Ooh. there are very many at all. That's um, a challenge. There, well, there's one coming up next year, which I think is is kind of up there, but it's because it takes it and does something completely different with it, yeah, and melds it with another song. Like you probably know which one I'm talking about. Oh yeah, about. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, there are a lot of covers in general that work. You know, I've got no problem with covers as a thing. Um, yeah. But if you're tackling tackling something that's already massive, I just it, it very 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 rarely works out and i think this is a real example of that of like you're not capable of this song this isn't your song you didn't birth this so you shouldn't carry it you know it's like oh i hate it hate it yeah (laughs) all right then third up this week is this This is Pure and Simple by Hearsay. Released as the lead single from Hearsay's debut album entitled Pop Stars, as we found out earlier, Pure and Simple is also the first single released by the group in the UK after each of the five members, Mylene, Danny, Suzanne, Noel, and Kim, won the ITV talent competition Pop Stars. Uh, it is the group's first number one in the UK, but it is not their last. Pure and Simple went straight in at number one as a new entry, knocking Westlife off the top spot. It stayed at number one for three weeks, selling 550,000 copies in its first week at number one, 242,000 copies in its second week, and 81,000 copies in its third and final week. During this time, it beat competition from I Wanna Be You by Chocolate Puma, which got to number six, that was in the first week, uh, Decent song. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mr. Writer by Stereophonics, which got to number five in its second week. One of my least favourite songs ever. Wow. And, and Butterfly by Crazy Town, which got to number three in its third and final week. <laughs> hey. Yeah. 
Come on, Molly. Come on, come, it's a good song. Come, we can't shake that song off this week. It's like a rash. Mm. You're my butterfly, <laughs> sugar, baby. Um, come, Molly. <laughs> when it was knocked off the top of the charts, pure and simple, fell two places to number three. And by the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 28 weeks. It is the fourth and final single of 2001 to have sold over a million copies in the UK. Uh, Andy, how do we feel about Pure and Simple? Um, well, it's, for me, this was a really, really tricky one to come to an opinion on because I, I don't know if you two have this problem. Maybe it's because I actually watched Pop Stars and was really, really into it um, as a TV show. I can't really separate the thing from the song. I can't separate the TV show from the song. And I, I just, I can't really judge this as a piece of music because for me, it's always just like the finale moment of Pop Stars. Even though it wasn't the finale, the show kept going after this point, which is a really weird thing that you wouldn't do these days. But um, yeah, I was a really, really big fan of Pop Stars. I had the series on VHS, which I'm really tempted to revisit that now and watch it. Um, and I think because it's, because ESA were overshadowed by their own failure, but also by Liberty X's big success and Darius as well outshone them on this series and oh, went yeah. on to be a big success through Pop yeah. Idol. Um, and the fact that ESA never took off, I think we forget what a big thing this was at the time, that this was like a massive, massive event. It was really the original equivalent of an X Factor winner's single when this happened. Yeah. Um, mm. And I think still probably, with the exception of Will Young coming up, I think still the biggest in terms of, oh my God, it's the winner's single. Um, it's 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 okay, and I wouldn't really go any further than that. I don't have any specific problem with the song. I think it's a weird choice to go with a kind of mid-tempo sort of sort of you know shrug your shoulders kind of half ballad i think that's a weird choice for a debut single but given that you know some other artists have launched themselves off the back of that recently atomic kitten have launched themselves off the back of several quite chill songs maybe that's just a bit of a Mm -hmm. thing they were going for i think the song is absolutely fine i think the vocals are of varying quality i think Sorry to say it, Danny stands out like a sore thumb as his voice doesn't gel with the others. Like, his his voice is fine, but he's got a much more gruff voice compared to the sickly sweet, almost identical voices of the other four. Um, I think it very very clearly sounds like a group that have just got together, that have got teeth and problems. There's not much interaction between the five. Um, But it is okay. It is okay. I have a very fond memory of me and my sister arranging a dance routine to this song, which we then performed for the family. Um. <laughs> oh yeah, I've done that a few times. It wasn't dance routines; it was actual small plays that we did. But Jesus, well, it ended with thing. what the fuck? At the point of the key change, my sister did a sort of power pose, hands on the hips, legs apart, and I dove through her legs and rose up at the point of the key change, um, yes. which is you know the classic move. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, at the time, I really liked it, but there's not much to say about this. To be honest, it's it's a it's a pop culture product more than it is a song, and I think everyone who bought it was really kind of buying into the hype and buying into the product that is hearsay, and that was pop stars the TV show rather than the song itself. And I think that's what everyone always does with X Factor winners singles going forward is that you're buying into the the pop cultural event that has happened rather than the music, which is why so many of these artists disappear immediately afterwards because people don't actually care about the artist or the music it's just about the tv show so it's a weird one to talk about from this kind of critical perspective but it's okay 
Um, I think the key change would work much, much better if they got rid of the sort of slightly chilled out bridge. I think if you do that, if you're the only one for me, key change, wherever you go, you've got the momentum there, that would work much better. That little chilled out bridge is weird. I don't know why that's there. It kills the momentum from the song, and so the key change stands out much, much more. Um, But other than that, it's okay. It's not any better than that. It's a perfectly decent debut single. It doesn't deserve the status that it got in terms of selling a million, being number one for several weeks, you know, still being known to this day. It doesn't deserve that, to be honest. It's just a, it's sort of a moment in time that is kind of recorded in history through this song's success. Yeah. Yeah. A moment in time is a good way of summing this up, I think, because as much yeah. as this probably didn't deserve to sell the figures that it did, we'll talk about this next time when we talk about mm. them again. They don't deserve what happened to them afterwards either. No. Because it is a proper, like, you know, B sharps, are we hot? We are not kind <laughs> of moment where, like, they go from, like, overnight successes to just, like, overnight social pariahs where everybody fucking hates them for no real reason, except they just released oh, a few Oh, I mean, th- there is one reason. Have you ever seen the car crash that was here, say, it's Saturday? Um, no. It was a TV oh. special they got given, which was sort of in the style of Chums from SMTV, where they just performed sketches. They had a comedy wall where they would pop their heads out and tell jokes, and it's like... I think it's listed on Wikipedia's list of TV shows considered the worst ever made. Um, oh, my God. It's really... It's, truly awful hearsay at saturday so that that was one reason because it's like that yeah, yeah <laughs> they, they diversify too quickly yeah, they did not have that kind of cultural capital <laughs> yeah yeah the thing for me with this is that th- there are two things that when i was listening to this that i can't get out of my head the first is that the chord progression is really similar to i try by macy gray yeah every time it leads into the chorus i just expect I try to say goodbye and I choke. Try to walk away. <laughs> there's, there's a few, you know, a few, a few fits that are a little bit different in there that kind of make it, you know, they give it a different tone. But That was a really yeah. admirable attempt to do in Macy Gray's voice there, Rob. It kind of came what across a, voice. a bit more Phil Mitchell than Macy Gray, but it was a good effort. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit more Linny doing wheel meat again than <laughs> Macy Gray, but yeah, sure. The other thing that I always associate this with is um, Car Share, Peter Kay's um, one that that he did, uh, the show that he did a few years yeah. uh, a few years ago. Still haven't seen it. I mean, I there's know. an end of an episode where um, I mean, obviously, you know, the, I guess Lizzie, you've not seen the show, but you know the premise, right? Where it's yeah, I know the two premise, friends yeah. they carpool together, etc. Um, and obviously, quite a lot of the series is built around this will they, won't they sort of thing with the relationship where there's a, the, the, there's a huge dramatic irony for the audience where it's very obvious that they both like each other a lot, but neither of them are in a position where they can act on their feelings or anything like that. And so, or that the, the Peter Kay's character, John, I think his name is, is particularly bad at discussing his feelings and being open about his feelings because of the way that he's been bruised in the past emotionally and romantically and stuff and so the way that he manages to sort of express himself in a little way um i think it's or is it the other way around she gives him the cd i think and it's now 48 i think and there's a little note that just says um it just says listen to track two 
and this is track two on that CD. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it is. It's now 48. Aww. Yeah. Um, and that's the way that they managed to work out. Um, well, at least it's the way that we managed to work out that they do actually feel for each other. Um, yeah, the summary of the episode. Um, the episode ends with John playing Pure and Simple by Hearsay on Now 48, his CD gift from Kaylee, with a handwritten note telling John that she dedicates the song to him. And so I always think of that. It's, it's decent car share. I don't love it. Um, I really, really liked the original ending, and then they put another episode out that kind of was a retcon <laughs> of the ending. Um, but never mind. Um, the song itself, um, there's something about this. It's funny, Andy, that you mentioned Atomic Kitten and you also mentioned the term half ballad. They both appear in my notes, huh. which Andy hasn't seen. No, I haven't. Um, no. I literally only wrote them about an hour before we were going to come on and record. Um, it, it's just, it's kind of carefully composed, this kind of half ballad that. It feels like there's a little bit that you can feel the way that all of its parts come together in a way that I actually quite like. And it's quite romantic and I love the way that they've managed the the harmonies and the relationship between the vocals and the keys and the sort of like the the instrumentation. Like it all, it's all very, not, I wouldn't exactly say luscious, but it feels soft and quite delicate and quite sweet. I think, but similarly to Hole Again, this feels cheapened by a pretty artificial environment. The production takes any kind of human emotion out of the instrumental performances. Um, and so I get left feeling a little cold. And I think also this is just a weaker song by comparison compared to Hole Again. So more points kind of get knocked off for how yeah sort of sterile this feels in places which is a shame because the song itself i think is i think it's slightly better than inoffensive um which sounds like a backhanded compliment but it's not trust me we've got one more song left this week where that will definitely you know you, you'll understand that when i say slightly better than inoffensive it is definitely a compliment when i apply the same term to a song we've got coming up next um but yeah it's definitely it was a moment and a fleeting moment at that in british pop culture at least for two or three of the members of the group because obviously kim marsh mylene class they both went on to do other things it basically set them up for life in a way um hmm. but yeah i think this is it's fine i think it's quite sweet i think it's kind of spoiled by like I say, this kind of unintentional artificiality that I think it has. Lizzie, how about you? You can round off for Pure and Simple. Yeah, I've just realised what it sounds like. Never Ever by All Saints. Yeah, it does sound like yes. that. Yeah. It's yes. absolutely that. It's like, um, I don't really have much to say about the song, but I think I'm glad you've both mentioned the cultural aspect of it because this is a big watershed moment not just for our podcast but for music as a whole in that it's our first talent show number one that i'm aware of as in at least in the 21st kind of, century yeah 
Exactly, the kind of 21st century iteration on the pop talent show, not like, I don't know, New Faces or Opportunity Knocks, that kind of thing. Mm. But, yeah, I can... I'm just, Andy, going back to what you said about how they face a lot of abuse, I think it, it maybe because it was such a novel thing that you've got this group who have come from nothing and all of a sudden they're like the biggest pop group in the country and it's like it feels unfair like they've they've won the lottery or something but it is just the kind of novelty of it and i think also i do feel bad for them because it feels like they were mismanaged and i wonder if someone like simon fuller saw that when he was creating his idols show and thought okay well what can i do to avoid that like step one would be to not just arbitrarily throw singers into a group if they don't all fit together. Like you would, it doesn't seem like there was any kind of meticulous planning in actually putting them together as a unit. So, you know, is it any wonder that they don't blend together and that one of the members had left within a year because they were falling out with the others? Like, yeah. no, because it, that's not how a, a pop group works. You need to, like, for someone like the Spice Girls. For example, you would surely rigorously test to make sure that this is a a workable concept before you launch it. And same with like S Club. And you wonder if those groups are kind of looking at this moment and looking at this song and thinking, well, we're done. Because essentially the big pop producers, the people who make all the decisions and make all of the money, have found a way to create this endless conveyor belt of stars that they can just put together, use up, work to the bone, and then throw their lifeless bodies in a river once they're done with them. And that's like the pattern we will see going through particularly the 2000s, but also into the 2010s. And like, yeah, this feels like the end of the line for pop as we know it. Wow, Before, that's a big statement. Like, <laughs> yeah, because, well, yeah, you've had groups that have been put together and kind of they've worked for a bit and then they've got fallen out of favour. But this is the first time it feels like it was created with the intention almost to just, you know, work them to the bone. And then once they're no good, doesn't matter, we can move on. We can have another series and we'll create a new batch of stars and then a new batch and then a new batch. And it just never ends. Yeah. And so, yeah. They feel like a dry run. And they they, they feel like guinea pigs to me. Absolutely. If I can maybe just suggest the tweak that was made between this and the X Factor. Um, I I, I completely agree with what you've said, Lizzie, that there's something missing here and that they, you know, they are just normal people who've been catapulted into stardom and quite understandably, quite fairly couldn't handle it, uh, which is totally fair enough. I wouldn't hold that against yeah, it. Yeah. And I think the, the tweak that was made is that I think with pop stars and largely pop idol, um, there was a, a lot of actually genuinely, you know, the right intentions in terms of they wanted the best singers and they wanted them. Yes, they want them to have the look and the chemistry with each other. But when you watch the series, pop stars, you know, it is genuinely about the best singers a lot of the time. Um, and with Pop Idol as well, I think largely everybody who entered Pop Idol, the first series at least, was a very good singer. And it became less about that with The X Factor. I think there was a lot of emphasis on who can sing well, who looks the best. But then it's like, well, actually, we need someone with the right personality. We need someone who's yeah. got that kind of PR aspect to them that we can run. 
And I think the turning point, not to kind of spoil it too much, but I think the turning point is Gareth Gates. I think that's when people realise, actually, when someone's got a story, when someone's got a background to them, let's make it about that rather than their singing ability. And I think we're at the first phase before that now where I think Nigel Lithgow and Simon Fuller and etc. are naively launching quite bland groups of five decent singers into the public eye who are not going to work out because they don't have that hook with the public. And when they figure that out, everything changes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of like how from the first season of Big Brother, where it does feel like a genuine, let's put all of these people in a room and see what happens, but we can sort of fuck with them kind of thing. Yeah. To you go, you fast forward like three, four years, and it's like, let's put all of these big personalities in a house and watch sparks fly because, yeah, they're going to clash. Mm. And that's what it kind of morphs into where the X Factor does become this thing of yeah we'll have some good singers in there but we'll also have these utter weirdos who really don't belong in the singing competition but we will we'll we'll use them just enough so that they'll rile up the public but not so much that they will tune out they will kind of tune in to see them get their comeuppance even though they're just members of the public who are on a talent show but even the good singers Tesco Mary right? we all all say the phrase Tesco Mary we say her backstory before we say her name we call her Tesco Mary because that's what we did (laughs) with her that's like that was the most important thing about her was not that she was a good singer it's that she worked in Tesco and I think that's the point they need to get to (laughs) before these before you get that kind of um different angle of the public that's the point that they get to in the future yeah one thing i will yeah, say is that on, the x factor's name is its get out clause yeah yeah exactly they're on yeah. the search for somebody with the x factor what's the x factor don't know but they, simon cow can occasionally lean back in his chair stroke his chin and look at the person on the stage and go you've got the x factor and it's like What's the X Factor? Dunno. It's this arbitrary thing that we can just make up, but it means something like big personality or the, st- the, the star factor or whatever that is. It's just all these ingredients that they can just make up and they're not quite there yet. They've not quite refined the... Pr- it's really, even by the time they get to the X Factor, they don't quite refine the product because the first winner of that, where the fuck's he? Mm. You know, like he's on Twitter. If you want to, if you want to check out, yes, yeah, exactly. He's got a lot lot of time on there. Yeah. One thing that is worth mentioning before we move on is that they actually all did make a good go of it in terms of their future careers. Mylene Class Mm. is still a name that people know. Kim Marsh, obviously, she had like ten years on Corrie, and she's a current, as of right now, she's she's a current contestant on Strictly. Um, Not so much for Danny, Noel, and Suzanne. Although Suzanne, I think, won Dancing on Ice. Um, which my mum loves, which is why I know that. <laughs> but um, yeah, they all made a fairly decent go of it. Um, so props, and of course, they made yeah, it work. Johnny Shentel, who would later appear on Totally Scott Lee. Yeah, he's uh, he's Scott Lee's husband. Yeah, he's Mister Scott Lee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like just on him, I don't because I, I know they come up again, but he doesn't get a number one with the group. And like I remember, it was a big thing around time where like they unearthed footage of him like being. I don't know if it was scouted or if he was in a previous pop group and it was like this big scandal like oh my god they've been headhunted by all these PR people and put into this fabricated group and it's just like so I think so when something like The Voice comes along it's like yeah they're all pre-trained singers who may or may not have been in previous pop acts it's like well yeah because it's like where where do you go from there and you know they, they need to 
put money on the table as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last up this week, it's this. This is What Took You So Long by Emma Bunton, released as the lead single from Emma Bunton's debut solo album entitled A Girl Like Me. What Took You So Long is Emma Bunton's second single in the UK and her first to reach number one, and also her last. What Took You So Long went straight in at number one as a new entry, knocking Hearsay off the top spot. It stayed at number one for two weeks, selling 76,000 copies in its first week atop the charts and 65,000 copies in its second week. It beat competition from Bow Wow, That's My Name by Lil Bow Wow, which got to number six in its first week at number one, and All For You by Janet Jackson, which got to number three, um, Out Of Reach by Gabrielle, which got to number four, and Let Love Be Your Energy, which got to number ten, and they were all in its second week. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, What Took You So Long dropped seven places to number eight. I felt that from here. And by the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 13 weeks. Crikey! Crikey! That fell out. It's like somebody just ripped the rug out from underneath it. It just, that was it. It just smashed all its teeth on the floor and that was done. Ironically, Um, it didn't take so long to fall out. (laughs) No, it didn't. Yeah, the, I think I'll I'll go first on this because uh, yeah, I have sure. so little to say. Um, I think I know why, which is basically everybody goes out and buys this because oh, it's her from the Spice Girls, and it goes da 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 da. That that's that's the only reason I think people went out and bought this because like oh, it's her, and I, yeah, I, I remember this sort of, and then after about three weeks, everyone's just sort of like. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, do you remember that? And then, Why did I buy this? And then, there we go, out it goes, 13 weeks, uh, sort of pales in comparison. I mean, 13 weeks isn't exactly terrible, but like, Jesus, dropping from number one to number eight. Yeah, me. compared to like what she was used to, like just three years before this. Yeah. It's nothing. It's a bit of a dropout. Um, it's a shame that this is the only time we'll get to talk about her on this show because what she does later on her second album Free Me is way more interesting yeah. oh, th- th- there's some really really good stuff on there that I was actually 
I, I'd forgotten about, but then when I was pressing play on it and listening to it, I was like, oh, I remember this. Like, um, I don't know if you, either of you remember, is it uh, Maybe, where it's, um, that the hook is the, um, and it's yeah, all yeah. like and it's all like these 60s psychedelia like um retro futuristic stuff from i was way more interested in that um whereas like going back to this it's just like you know when i said before that like pure and simple was like slightly better than inoffensive and that's not an insult think it's because this is slightly better than inoffensive but in a way that i feel like it it this is actually a backhanded compliment and handing out it's very bland it feels really specifically engineered not to live on its own terms but to live as track nine on one of those driving songs cd compilations that you'd get around (laughs) this time where it's like why is this on here? Oh, well, I am driving, and I guess it kind of matches my surroundings. Yeah, fine. You know, it matches the, you know, anonymity of every British motorway that there is out there, where it's not going to hurt me. You know, it's not going to ask too much of me. Everybody involved sounds like they'd rather be somewhere else. Um, Her voice never really gets above any kind of... You know, it doesn't explore her range... At any point, it doesn't ask anything of you. It's really... It feels like, I don't know, some unimaginative amalgamation of, like, something that Ronan Keating would have passed on and what Cheryl Crow would return with after her small hiatus (laughs) about a year later. It feels like something like Soak Up the Sun, but not as rowdy. And Soak Up the Sun is not a rowdy song. (laughs) It, It feels like it's asleep as soon as it starts. Like, it's not bad. It has some nice kind of melodic turns in various bits i kind of like the even though andy i know i'll leave this to you to point out but rhythmically the opening strands of this match uh, a song from last year that we're not that keen on where it does the the little kind of twangy at the beginning and you know you think oh this sounds interesting and then the verse just goes da 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 Da, 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 da. <laughs> and it just it just doesn't do anything that really interests me and i don't, I don't hate this I, I, I actually kind of like it more than uptown girl um but i don't know i just i'm worried that if i talk about it i'm gonna stop because if i'm worried if i talk about it much longer you may hear my forehead just go on the mic because i've <laughs> fallen asleep yeah. in the middle of speaking so yeah lizzie what do we make of this then <laughs> yeah, it, it's like Dreams by Fleetwood Mac on Pyroton. Yeah, yeah, not not disagreeing. <laughs> it's just like barely stayed awake, just like, come on, soldier through. It's only four minutes. But yeah, um, totally agree with your points. In terms of post-Spice Girls hits, this feels like the most likely to be a hit because of its broad appeal, but also the one I have least interest in revisiting because of that. And like, you think of the other Spice Girls solo hits from 2000, 2001, and they're all very distinct in terms of their sound. Like, Mel C, she's moved on to, like, moody dance and hip-hop and R&B. Jerry Halliwell's leaned into, like, queer themes, like, very overtly queer themes as well. Mel B is doing, like, the Jam and Lewis R&B sound more confidently than she was on the last Spice Girls album. 
like um I feel so good um by Mel B. It was in the it was in the chart around this time. I want to say it was kind of maybe falling out just a bit. But yeah, go and listen to that if you thought the the Spice Girls R&B stuff was a bit underwhelming because it does sound a lot more interesting and a lot more confident. And even like Victoria's unnervingly artificial sounding collaboration with True Steppers has, has grown on me a lot lately as someone who I think previously would have like because I love Groove Jet so much I think I might have written it off a bit but yeah I've, I found it sort of working my way it working its way into my heart but just this is like you Rob you said driving music I say drive time music yeah it's real Radio 2 fodder like yeah, um, I think I don't want to steal what Andy. I don't want to steal your comparison <laughs> again because it's just just going to be. We're going to be kind of going in a feedback loop. But I really did have to check it wasn't by the same writers because it does all the same beats, but thankfully spares us from the vocalist in question. Um, but yeah, she just doesn't sound particularly committed to anything on this. It sounds like right. We've got to get a hit. You know, the Spice Girls name's fading. You've got to stay relevant. But it's like, do you even want to do that? It's okay if you don't because, hey, you've had a busy few years and it's okay to just kind of want to leave that behind. And I think, Rob, like you mentioned, on the next album, it feels like, you know, pressure's off. I can kind of do some fun stuff if I want to. Mm. Instead of this, which really does feel like we've got to reach the broadest appeal possible and... We don't have much time to do it and we don't have many ideas. So this is all we've got and, well, this is the end result. And, like, is it any wonder this is our only number one? Yeah. Not not going to disagree too hard there. So, Andy, come in hot and heavy with your <laughs> comparison that we were teasing and now you must give us. <laughs> well, you're both, you're both very kind, but it's not just mine. We all realised it. I think I was the first one to say it, but you two very much realized it as well i think it's quite glaring really it's that this sounds so much like life is a roller coaster so we've it's got practically the, the same song yeah, yeah so first of all the it's just like literally the same it's got the same instrumentation throughout the same sort of beat they're both well this isn't quite in c major this is sort of flirting with the key of c major but it's in a related key and even the kind of the way, as you said, Lizzie, the way the beats hit in terms of the emphasis, it we found love. It's like, what took you so long? Like, it hits in the exact same way. It's like written as the same song. And yeah, it's kind of remarkable that it's not any of the same writers. I checked that as well. I looked at all five of the writers who worked on this song, one of whom wrote Wannabe or helped to write Wannabe. And then they wrote this. So I, yeah. I I'm not I'm not a big fan of this. I will say that it's better than Life Is a Roller Coaster. Like this is basically a female Life Is a Roller Coaster. I think, and not to kind of you know put everyone into gender boxes, but I think that's in terms of the way this was produced, in terms of the idea of it, it's let's do a more kind of sensual, a more feminine take on that song. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Um, I think the reason why Emma is quite so, her solo career a lot of the time is quite sort of generic and quite sort of straightforward and the songs are a bit thin is unfortunately her voice is really not the strongest it's it's i think certainly the weakest yeah. of the five from the spice girls Agreed. 
And yeah. I think it's no coincidence that the two with the strongest voices did the most interesting things with their solo career. You know, Jerry's got the... Apart from Mel B, maybe, Jerry's got the loudest, most resonant voice. So her music is like balls to the wall, roller coaster madness a lot of the time. Mel C has definitely got the strongest tone to her voice, definitely got the most kind of interesting, most versatile voice. So her music tends to be quite alternative and different. Posh is a different case. <laughs> Mel B, who knows what happened there. But with Emma, yeah. She has quite a generic, quite quiet, quite sort of thin alto voice, which is sort of death for a pop star, really. So what she gets given is quite piecemeal and there's not much substance to it. Um, And it kind of, I think it plays into the Baby Spice vibe quite a lot as well, in that she's still sort of treated as sort of sickly sweet, as kind of, you know, kind of a little bit sort of impish and hee hee hee, look at me, you know, just a kind of, there's a bit of a vibe to it that I think is a little bit saccharine and a little bit annoying. Um, it's like I say, it's not as bad as Life is a Roller Coaster, purely because the bit that I really like is the bridge that I believe in honesty, because I think that's like, that's something a little bit different. It's something that very slightly challenges her vocal range and to a sort of minor extent. But I completely agree with what both of you have said that, you know, what you've said, Robert, that this doesn't challenge her at all, that it's really, really by the numbers. You know, it's, it's, there is very, very little to say about it, unfortunately. And I think it's largely just because she's Emma Bunton is why this did so well. Um, I do think there is potential there, you know, and I agree with you that some of her later solo tracks are much better than this, that she does have more to offer. But if you were to think, right, what kind of music would suit Emma? I kind of would think something like Ronan Keating, to be honest, because she is sort of that kind of artist, unfortunately, and that kind of singer. And that's, I find it really, really hard to not make it sound really insulting, but it just is what it is, unfortunately. I feel like of the five, she is the hardest sell as a solo artist. Um, and that's where we are with her, basically. But it's okay. Like, it's all right. It's really boring. And it took me like three listens to actually engage with this and listen to the whole thing actively and not switch off and not look at my phone and lose interest in it. It was really hard to stay awake for this song. Um, it's really, really dull. But I've heard worse just about. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's not great to be honest. It's not great. Yeah, I do kind of agree that um, Emma was possibly the weakest vocalist of the Spice Girls, but there's definitely moments like where her her softness really kind of is just perfect, and nobody else in the Spice Girls could do that. Like um, you know, in Two Become One, where she does oh, the yeah. bridge. Yeah, definitely. Oh, like. <laughs> Yeah. Be a little bit wiser, bit like yeah. yeah that that like, nobody else in the Spice Girls could really have done that bit and made it sound oh, yeah. like so. It's all about how she's sultry. managed, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, it is all about how she's managed and how she's written for because she perfectly suits the surroundings on Free Me. Totally, I, I, absolutely, yeah. And don't get me wrong, she really had her place in the Spice Girls. You know, obviously, I've yeah. done my whole diatribe about how brilliant the Spice Girls are before. But one of the things that was so great about them is that they were the perfect mix. You know, the, the five of them really did all genuinely bring something completely different to the table that worked as a combination. And Emma was a big part of that. That you needed someone who was very, very sweet and relatable to contrast with the big personalities of the other four. As a solo artist, though, that really exposes her, and that's the problem, I think. Yeah, fair enough. 
Yeah. Okay then, so we're gonna uh, we'll do our vault and pie hole inductions for this week. So, um, it wasn't me. Is that going in the pie hole or the vault for anybody? Nah. No. No. Not for me either. <laughs> uh, Uptown Girl, Westlife. I'm putting that in the pie hole. Goodbye. Okay. In it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, pure and simple by hearsay. No. Nah. Nah. Okay. And What Took You So Long by Emma Bunton. No. Marginal, no. marginal okay. for me. I thought about it, but no. No, it's not that bad. No. No. Okay, then. So, next week, um, we are going to go for... Well, in the next episode, we're going to go for the 22nd of April through to the 2nd of June. So, another decent bit of time um, is, is going to be uh, covered by the next episode that we do. And also, not to... Don't, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a cliffhanger. There is going to be a Hits 21 first next week it's a particular phenomenon that takes place a few times through, uh, over the course of the next sort of 20 years or so that we're going to be covering and this is the first time it happens in the 21st century so Ooh. I'm curious about how we're going to deal with it but we'll cross that bridge when we get there so thank you very much for listening please do vote in the poll which I will leave um at the uh it's, it's it's underneath the episode in spotify if you just sort of click on it and it, it, it's there underneath and you can just click on a on a song that you liked more than any other and then it'll go and then there'll be some magic happens and it, it counts your vote so please do that yes 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 the poll i'm just giving myself more editing to do because i hate myself but yes we, we will see you next time see you next time bye bye see ya